back to In The Soup. This week, I'm chatting to Moji Nishat, General Manager of Nando's Singapore. I've known Moji for a while now, as Nando's in Singapore have been a customer for the last year or so. They've been operating throughout the pandemic, originally as delivery only, and have now fully reopened for dine-in. We talk about what they've done to keep customers and the team safe, and how they've gone back to work, how diversifying channels is going to stick around for a long time, and government schemes that have and haven't worked. It was great to speak to Moji, and his head is clearly back in the game. One quick plea before we hear from Moji, if you've been enjoying the podcast, make sure to leave us a review. It helps people find us and hear about the podcast. Hope you enjoy the episode. So today I'm speaking to uh, Moji Neshat from Nando's based in Singapore. Thank you so much, Moji, for taking the time to uh, to chat with me today. Uh, I'd love to just kick off by having you tell us a little bit about you, give us a bit of background uh, on you. Yeah. Uh, hi, Christine. Good to chat. Um, so I have been in Singapore for two years now. Um, I was originally from the UK and spent the last six years before that in London. Um, I've been at Nando's for six and a half years, and before that was in management consulting, uh, in, also in London. And that was with McKinsey, right? Uh, that's correct, yeah. Yeah, so similar to my to my business partner in that was at McKinsey and now gone into the hospitality industry. Tell me a little bit about how that, um, uh, what brought you into hospitality initially? Yeah, so actually, interestingly, my dad has a pizzeria in the north of England. So growing up with that, I was adamant that I was not going to join the hospitality sector. It looked like <laughs> a lot of work. Um, but um, after three years at McKinsey, I, through a mutual contact, um, I was put in touch with Nando's who were recruiting for a, a strategy role, so quite similar in terms of function. And initially in my mind, I was drawn to Nando's as a brand and, and as a business, but in my mind I was like, well, hospitality is interesting, but maybe for two years and then I'll find something else. Um, and, and six and a half years later, I'm, I'm still at Nando's, still in <laughs> So, you're, so, so what, what has it, so it must have been very different from what, how you, your experience of seeing what your dad did. Um, you, as you said, you were there, you've been there for six and a half years. And, and I believe you were in South Africa before uh, Singapore with, with, uh, with Nando's. So I was in, I was in London with the group office. So mm-hmm. for, for a couple of years, and then I was in the UK office for a couple of years, and then I moved across to Singapore. Uh, my dad's this not a single, you know, 800 square foot unit restaurant versus moving to a, a much bigger restaurant chain. I think that, you know, obviously there is quite a big difference, quite interesting to see the different challenges and, and, and impact at the different scales of a restaurant business. Yeah, but it's very different in terms of running a one-unit location. I can imagine compared to 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 a, a what is it like twelve hundred locations now? Single uh, Nando's has globally. Yeah, that's about right. Yeah, and and tell me, like your role of of uh, leading uh, Nando's in Singapore. What what does that look like? What let's talk about pre-pandemic if you could even remember that what that looks like. But what 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 was it like pre-pandemic? Sure. So it's. Um... It's, it's, a, it's a relatively small uh, business in Singapore. So, so Nando's, we're at six restaurants in Singapore. So we have a small central team. Um, and so we'll have an office. And so a lot of my time will be spent in that office, coordinating cross functions, so marketing, some finance, procurement um, operations. 
and then also trying to spend time in restaurants. So uh, Singapore is a very small island, very easy to get around. So you could spend time and, and visit all of the restaurants within a couple of weeks very easily. So try and spend time in restaurants as well. So yeah, so the role involves a bit of coordinating and supporting and, and guiding uh, each of the functions as well as spending some time in restaurants and, and, and trying to optimize and, and drive performance from restaurants. And, and so let's talk a little bit about how COVID might have changed that. Tell us a little bit first, how, how did Singapore as a whole react to COVID? I mean, I, I think probably in a much better organized way than, than the UK did. Yeah. Um, so I think there's a couple of factors that, that have helped in Singapore's response. So Singapore was one of the centers that was uh, affected by SARS in 2003. So given that, I think there is a a knowledge and a memory of that experience within the general population and also from the government. So there is a, there's a, a set of, there's a framework in place and an escalation process in place for pandemics or viral outbreaks. So that meant that after the first case emerged in, uh, in late January in, in Singapore, quite soon after that, by early February, we'd moved into a code orange, as it's called, and that then put restrictions in place in terms of the size of gatherings, in terms of activities that could be done. And then quite quickly after that, uh, as cases, imported cases continued to increase, they started putting in additional measures for contact tracing, for limiting the number of people in, uh, in groups and party sizes. And then we moved into our version of a lockdown for about 10 weeks where restaurants were still available for delivery and takeaway, but no dining was available. Um, retail was closed, but groceries and restaurants were still available for off-premise. Um, and, and masks have been mandated for several weeks now. So if you leave your, if you leave your home, you have to be wearing a mask. And, and they've been very thorough on enforcing that. So uh, that has culturally, I think people are quite open to wearing masks. It's something that people were doing way before COVID. If, if you were ill yourself, you would wear a mask to prevent you spreading it to other people. So I think culturally people were very familiar with that and, and they just effectively made that sort of mandatory at this point. So that um, has had a big impact, I think, on, on controlling the spread of, of the virus. The one caveat I'd say is that Singapore is also has a, a very large foreign worker population and they stay in specially built dormitories to a large extent. Um, and they are densely populated uh, and it's very hard to do any safe distancing and, and, and the communication to that group of people may not have been as strong as it could have been. So there's been a big outbreak in that population, but it has been somewhat isolated from the rest of the community. So whilst the numbers from, from that foreign worker dormitory population has, has spiked, actually community cases has never really gone above 25, 30. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, it's, it's, it's quite a different... Um, it is two completely separate populations, really. And is the, uh, because it sounds like you're saying that this framework existed pre uh, this outbreak, pre COVID, that they had come up with it with SARS and, and MERS, and, and yeah. then it was just okay, which, which must have meant that actually, um, A, you could react much faster, uh, and B, the population was much more. Uh, open to it i guess they've seen yeah. it before so it wasn't as much as a shock right is that i think that's right although it is just a framework so it, it um mm. there aren't specifics around you know the one meter safe distancing or or the mandating of masks that kind of specificity has come in 
as we've gone through the process in response to whatever science or guidance is coming through from the relevant authorities. But I think one of the big things that Singapore benefits from is a, is a high degree of trust in the government from the population. And so when the government is asking people to, to respond in a certain way, you're getting pretty quick and, and pretty comprehensive compliance. And then you pair that with very strong enforcement. So um, breaches of these, it, breaches of these, um, it, it's part of a, a specific act. So it, it effectively becomes illegal to, to, to not wear a mask or um, to, to go against some of these measures. You, you get very quick and swift um, retribution or, Crackdown. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. So the the those two factors, the high degree of trust and the willingness to crack down quickly, um, has meant that there has been very good compliance generally. And, and to be clear, the mask wearing is both in terms of if you're on the street in public transport in a shop, it's not it, you have in the street too. You have to be wearing it. as long as you leave your home, you have to wear it. Correct. As you know, when you're in your lobby to get the lift out of your apartment, you have to be wearing it. That's that. That I mean. I can't believe, uh, and and we were just just chatting briefly pre the the recording here, and and, and just to bring the, the listeners up to speed, we we were just saying um, about the masks. That was the one factor that, if you look at how population how the, the how it spreads in the in a population populations with masks, it's much lower than ones without masks. And I can't believe that the UK is still debating whether they should be putting masks just in in the shops they're not and on public transport obviously but but not not in the street right and and it feels like it's it's a ridiculous debate to have to have really it's just like just mandate it it's not that yeah. I mean, no one enjoys wearing them but like what's the big deal at the end of the day yeah and, and the reality is we're talking about countries in southeast asia or yeah 31 33 34 degrees with 60 70% humidity it's uh, walking in the streets with the mask in Singapore is considerably more unpleasant than doing the same in London. So it's hard to understand why, when there's pretty solid evidence that it can help, you wouldn't just mandate it. Yeah, yeah, totally. And so, uh, so, so you've explained how the lockdown went. Now, how, how did you and how did Nando's uh, react to that? Um, it, you know, I, I suspect working from home, etc. Like, how how did that work? Yeah, so I think the interesting period was pre-lockdown because there was progressive introduction of, of restrictions and measurements. So we needed to start doing contact tracing and uh, recording travel history of every person coming into the restaurant, temperature screening for employees and then for customers. And, and so every week wow. or every few days, there would be additional measures that we would need to, to enact. So there was a period of time, you know, actually the lockdown for us was much easier operationally to manage, although obviously commercially more painful um, but the run-up to that was actually quite difficult because overnight we needed to to mark half the tables out of action and, and put queue markers in to specify one meter and so that period of time was was a bit of a scramble to keep up with all of the changes um, i think during lockdown actually it allowed us to really catch up with some of that and, and start preparing and planning forward to say right what are some of the things that we need to do and put in place that may not yet be mandated from a regulatory point of view, but we think are important from, from a safety point of view. Um, and then, yeah, so during the lockdown, even, so then we've emerged from lockdown, dining has resumed, um, but we have safe distancing requirements. So one meter space in between parties and maximum party size of five guests, uh, requirements around use of masks, uh, availability of hand sanitizer, temperature screening, contact tracing, etc. So 
there's a lot of measures that are in place to try and I think this the Singaporean approach to it is is both minimize the risk of spread, but also ensure that if there is any cluster or outbreak, they can get on top of it as quickly as possible. So a recognition that getting to zero cases and zero spread is is, is very hard and, and very unlikely. But if you can keep it to a manageable number and you can do contact tracing quickly and efficiently, you can prevent it, isolated cases becoming like you know major clusters. So that's where a lot of the attention is, is um, focused on that. For, for the central team, we're still working from home. So the advice in, in Singapore is work from home unless there's a demonstrable need to go back to the offices. So for us, we can, we can do a lot of our work from home. And then for the team that are above restaurant, visiting multiple restaurants, we have created a split team structure. So um, individuals will only visit half of the restaurants and will never go to the other half of the restaurants and, and vice versa. So that if there is a case in a restaurant and, and um, anyone that's been to that restaurant is put into quarantine and any of their contacts are put into quarantine, we safeguard half of the business. So that's, there's, there's measures like that that I think, um, again, it's, it's aimed at not necessarily preventing or driving for zero cases, but making sure that when, if there is a case, um, we limit the, the spread and the reach of it. And and do you think um, for, for for you and the and the head office where where you're working from home is that something that you're looking to do longer term even when it does go back or or, or change the balance that that was that used to have how, how are you thinking about that? We've encouraged flexible working for a long time, so uh, the team are able to work from home when they find it conducive, or work from restaurants when when they prefer. I think for for many people, actually um, having a a a place that you go for work that separates work from home is, is quite helpful from a, uh, a mental health and a, and a space point of view. And, and actually one of the challenges I think we found is, especially in a res- restaurant business where operations go on for much longer than a sort of typical working day, um, and you're at home and you're working from home, it is very hard to draw any boundaries and you can end up um, sort of working all of the time. And, and, and so I think, there's value in having that place, having a commute that creates a bit of separation. Um, and not everyone has a, a home environment that is, you know, well suited to doing lots of video calls. If you so, I think there's going to be a there's going to be a place for an office. Um, I think will people be more inclined and, and more comfortable to work from home to some extent? Uh, I do think so, and I hope so. Um, but I think getting rid of the office completely is probably taking it a bit too far for us. Yeah, no. To, I I think I'm in in the same similar place to you. In in my view, it's it's actually so pre-pandemic we weren't really doing uh, working from home as much unless there was you know there was a specific reason uh, to do it. And and the reason for that is that it was kind of uh, you know there's a lot of benefits being in person because you can have like you know more chats and like react to things as things are happening and and feels like you there's more you can move faster in a lot of ways. Uh, but actually, it's worked quite well working from home. I do miss the, you know, the team used to have lunch together and and seeing the team like that. But uh, I I do agree. I think that even if you're looking, so we're not planning to go back to an office any time before September. Uh, even when we do, I think it'll be like one or two days a week, and then the re- the remainder of the time we work from home just to reduce the the amount of time people spend in in public transport and. And exposure, etc. But but I think that is, uh, you know, I, I, and I, interestingly, I'd be interested to hear from the Singapore side. But if you look at the impact that that 
has on brands like Pret, for example, um, it's 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 incredibly uh, it's a huge change, right? Because if you think about Pret, obviously work mostly with with office workers wanting to grab a quick lunch, um, and most of or or like on a, on at the airport at the train station, both of those obviously have been hit drastically and even if people go back to the office i think you know you're never going to get back to that level of 100% right people will be taking it in turns you know it'll probably be 40% 50% 60% less than what it used to be in terms of these office buildings being filled up like how how like so that's obviously having an impact on them and i don't think that would have an impact in the same way on, on nando's but how 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 do you think that's going to redraw the kind of eating out uh, opportunity in 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 Singapore. Yeah, so we are seeing a bit of that, and, and ultimately, the way that we're experiencing it is that some of our central locations that are more dependent on office workers and lunch times, and actually historically tourists, which which aren't here anymore, um, they're suffering or struggling more. But we are seeing some of the restaurants in the more suburban locations actually doing this, and suburban more specifically, actually doing better than we expected and, and in some cases actually better than they were last year. So I think you are seeing a bit of a redistribution, not necessarily just a reduction. Um, uh, and then I think the other part, and I'm sure we'll talk about this, but the other part of it is I think you're also going to see a, a bit of a, um, a sustained shift in channel mix. So yeah. um, as, as people are less present in offices, you, I think the role of delivery is, and takeaways is going to increase. So actually, let, let, let's talk about that because that's how have you thought about channel generally through the crisis and now you're coming out of it? Yeah, so I think because we we always were able to do delivery and takeaway, there was that 10-week period of what Singapore called a circuit breaker, but I think you could call it a lockdown, where that off-premise channel or channels was the, the whole game. So our ambition and aim during that period was basically to maximize um, our route to market through those channels. So historically we've worked with um aggregators so the likes of delivery um and then grab who is a um a southeast asian uh uh transport brand that that branched out into food and, and actually bought out uber in the region so you can think of them quite similar to uber and uber eats and then food panda which um is very similar to delivery and, and grab foods so we've historically always worked with those three partners and they do the customer acquisition and the logistics. So it's a full end-to-end -end model. During the lockdown, what we started to look at was the ability to use third-party logistics and pair that with an acquisition channel. So um, that could be one of those three that you just mentioned, or it could be another ordering platform. Uh, and then because the, the third-party logistics is managed by us, we can then control the customer fee, we can control the delivery radius. And so we actually then have a bit more control and we can um, look to maximize uh, the sales. So that additional, those additional routes to market really did um, help help us boost volume during that period of time. And, and it adds complexity into the business, but but at that time with no diamond, it was something that the team could manage. And did you, did, uh, what about, um, was takeaway like click and collect, pick up allowed, mm. or was only delivery allowed? No, so takeaway is also permissible. So we, you could do both ordering at the cashier and, and, and wait and takeaway, um, or you could do click and collect. So um, we saw a big increase in, in, in digital channels 
Um, so online ordering increased significantly at that time. And that was partly something that we would try to drive to minimize the contact time and, and presence of people in restaurants. But I think it's also just something that people were looking for as well. And, and, and now, like, how do you see that post-pandemic in terms of, so clearly we're still in it and, you know, the, there's huge arguments in terms of how long is this going to last? Do we, you know, is it really going to last till we get a vaccine, et cetera? So I, I think we can all confidently say that we're not out of it yet and anytime soon there's going to be um second waves etc but for you in terms of strategically if if we say you know if we look at three to five years from now are you thinking you know delivery and click and collect are, are channels i want to invest more in in any case um because well to protect against another pandemic to or just because it's uh, you know uh, it is an integral part of it now how are you thinking about it yeah, so I think the if we think about where the growth is going to come over the next one to three years, um, I think it's pretty, we were already on a trend for the last few years where off-premise was growing faster than dining. And actually, you look at it at a, at a global level or even at a market level, um, dining was, was flat to in decline um, and for the last couple of years, whereas delivery and, and, and takeaway to some extent as well have been driving the growth for restaurants. So I think it's hard, to, it's hard to see a version where this pandemic isn't going to just turbocharge that reality. So I think there is an important um, role for delivery and takeaway, and, and it's going to become a bigger part of the, the restaurant mix going forward. So absolutely, it becomes important. I think digital also. Um, we launched our online ordering last year. And we were getting a penetration level that we were pretty happy with, given it was a soft launch and we were up at about 10%. Since the pandemic, we've removed physical menus because they're a high contact surface that can be a potential um, spread uh, or, or way to uh, contaminate. So we've gone to exclusively digital ordering. Um, and so we're, you know, we uh, also exclusively digital menus as well as um, pushing digital ordering. And, and so effectively, we managed that penetration has, has increased five, six X. Wow. So I think the reality is this moment will shift behaviors. Um, and I think, yes, it will shift it to delivery, but I think the other big one is it will shift it to digital. In Singapore, to, to enter any shop, restaurant, mall, you have to scan a QR code and check in with your identity number uh, for contact tracing purposes. It's very common in restaurants now to see QR codes on tables to view the digital menu so that you don't have to have a physical menu. So the use of technology, I think, you know, it was, it, I think we would get here anyway. I think it's just that we've taken a five-year journey and compressed it into six months. And so yeah. I think going forward, the role of di how you weave in digital experiences without losing the human touch of hospitality, I think is going to be one of the big questions of the next one to three years. And, and if you can do that well, I think there's a lot of benefits that you'll get as a, as a brand. And, and specifically on that, what, what are you... Because I agree with you, I think hospitality at the end of the day, it's really about, you know, breaking bread together, you know, having uh, like a, a waiter or like, you know, th that, that human touch to, to that. How, how, how in this world do you think you keep that? How, what, what are you experimenting with? Yeah, so I think at the, I think part of it is trying to figure out what are the human interactions that we have that are positives versus necessary. So at the moment, paying is, is, is typically a human interaction and, and, and you are transacting with another person. 
um, you know, in the traditional model. I don't think people derive value from that interaction. Um, yep. Whereas you know, if you can have that as an online payment gateway or, you know, the QSR guys with their kiosks, that's simplifying and removing a human interaction that isn't adding value. So I think if you can use that as your principle, then you can potentially find opportunities. So the, the role of the hosts to greet you, welcome you, um, help people that have not been to the restaurant before to understand the restaurant or just let people that know what they're doing get on with it. That feels like a human touch point that adds value and, and I wouldn't want to automate or remove that with technology. Um, but you know, there are other areas, whether it's exploring the menu, actually having uh, the ability to use digital um, and imagery to help people understand, actually that might be something that's more, that can be done very effectively through technology. So I think it's, um, we're very early in that journey. Um, and I think there's lots of other priorities at the moment, but I think over the next 12 months, understanding what are the human touch points that add value, which is versus the ones that are just legacy because there's never been a technology solution, I think will help drive that decision. Yeah, I think I, I love that way of looking at it actually, because you're right, like the, the paying, waiting for the waiter to come up and like putting out your card and like there's like there's zero value of that. You're just like, that's so annoying. Uh, but yeah, otherwise like having someone explain the menu, 100%, I love that way of looking at it. It's, it makes a lot of sense. And, and actually talking about like the team, how, how, how have you approached like safety with them. I mean, I, I noticed something that I thought was really nice is the, the, the staff that have stickers that show the temperature reading uh, for the days, which, you know, clearly is like something that would make customers feel more confident, you know, like, okay, they've checked it and, and, and uh, it's, it's a normal reading, but yeah. How, how have you thought about that and how, what's the reaction of the team been? Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's, I think there was a period of time during the, you know, when it was most acute and it was most uncertain, where there was quite a lot of concern and anxiety with the team. I think we've come through a lot of that, especially because the number of cases have stabilized and, and day-to-day behaviors have, have been a bit more normalized. So I think we're now in a pretty good place. Um, in terms of measures, there's, there's a bunch of stuff that we do. Um, and, and actually, you know, the Singapore government has been, has been very proactive at, at supporting and guiding restaurants and businesses on this. So we do temperature screening for um, our teams when they enter the restaurant, before they come into the restaurant, and then another time during the day. And as you said, then they will put a little sticker with their temperature on. We find that the sticker is helpful both to give confidence to customers, but also it's a very obvious and visual way for the restaurant managers to just make sure that we're, you know, the team are, are complying with that requirement. And then obviously we, uh, mask wearing is mandatory. So we provide single use surgical masks for the team. Um, we think that's a better solution for them than the reusable masks. Um, just because it's, you know, making sure that those reusable masks are, are being cleaned diligently and, and appropriately. Um, I think for your personal use, it makes sense. And, and, and it, but, but, uh, in a, in a service and in a restaurant sense, I think we feel more comfortable having the single use. Um, we have face shields available for the team if they want them. So we haven't mandated that that is a requirement, but anyone that would, would like to have a face shield, um, in addition to the, the face mask, they are available in restaurants. Um, and then the team need to also have um, the contact tracing app um, downloaded and, and the Bluetooth enabled for that so that if they have been in contact with any one that is a confirmed case, they will be alerted about that. So we can hopefully catch any instances early. And that's a, that's a scheme that's administered by the government rather than by us directly. Um, so yeah, so I think there's, 
there's some stuff that we can do. The reality is, you know, we can try and minimize contact and, and overlap in restaurants. And, um, but um, I think kitchens are difficult places to maintain comp comprehensive safe distancing. Um, and so there is that, there is some element uh, of risk there that I think um, the teams recognize. But um, at the moment, given the, the, the prevalence of cases, it feels like a, a relatively low risk at this time. Do you, do you find that the um, the contact tracing app um, uh, has that been adopted? Uh, like, uh, have people been happy with that? Has it worked well? Like, is that what's the reaction been to that? Um, so there are two apps that are used. So one is a sort of permanently on Bluetooth app that will effectively monitor all the other Bluetooth devices that are in its range. Um, that the adoption of that has been pretty mixed. I think the last data I saw was about 30% adoption in Singapore. What the government has done is they have mandated that it has to be downloaded by foreign workers. So as the employer, you have to ensure that your foreign workers have that downloaded. Um, and this is because of the particularly high number of cases in the foreign worker dormitories. So I think as a tool for that high density population, it is probably being effective in, you know, but given the you know, nationally, it's at 30%. I don't know that it has necessarily been quite as successful as people wanted. Um, interestingly, they are just trialing physical devices for people that don't have smartphones. Um, so it would do the same as the Bluetooth app, but it'd be a physical device. The app that has been very successful um, is this check-in, check-out app. So it's called Safe Entry. And so if you want to enter any building, you have to check in. Um, and then when you leave, you have to check out. So part of the role of our team is, is to ensure that that is being done and, and, mm -hmm. um, and there are pretty hefty fines if, if we are found to be not compliant with that. So that means that if people have got very used to that, it, it's a QR scanner um, based system. So that I think has been quite effective at, at helping the government track, you know, it's hard, I guess, to remember everywhere you've been in the last 14 days. Um, whereas this then all the data from this is then centrally um, recorded. And, and so I think the government is, is quite um, able to, to track down where people have been. That's cool. Yeah, that's uh, that's because there's been again a lot of debate on that, and the 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 government tried a first approach that didn't work. Now they're trying the Apple and Google uh, approach. So let's see. I mean, at the moment, just to be clear, there's none at all in the UK. I mean, not that I, I like I don't think there's pretty much any uptake. I'm not even sure what app I could download to do it. It's uh, it's ridiculously poor the communication around that. Um, just, I'd like to talk a little bit about the broader industry and um, things like dark kitchens uh, in particular. Is that something that, you know, what are your views on dark kitchens, I guess, uh, generally, first of all? I think they have a place to play in, in, the, in the industry. I think as delivery becomes a bigger part of the equation, um, Doing delivery out of existing assets from a commercial point of view is great. You can leverage the existing asset and, and the rental costs that you have there and drive incremental sales. And, and so from a pure financial model, if you can do that, it's great. The challenge with that model is if you're already busy and now you're suddenly layering on top of a lot of delivery drivers coming in and out, you, you do risk um, impacting the customer experience. Yes. Uh, and... And ultimately, you know, there is complexity that comes with delivery. And, and so you can also distract your restaurant managers and your teams from, from doing the core operations well, because 
especially if you've got multiple partners and, and devices and managing inventory and, and managing riders um, across multiple partners can be challenging. So I think, in, you know, there, there's a version where you do it from existing assets and, and, and it can work well, but there's also a version where the existing asset cannot support delivery. And so I think dark kitchens can play a valuable role um, effectively as an infill strategy. So either you're serving an area but you can't serve delivery effectively from it. And so you can put in a dark kitchen with low rental costs and low capex, or you don't have enough demand from a, you know, from a subsection uh, or a, from a catchment. Um, and the dark kitchen can, is, you know, because of the lower capex, you can, have, you know, you can get a payback on putting a dark kitchen into that catchment, whereas a full-size restaurant, you couldn't necessarily justify from it. So I think as a complement and as an infill approach to, to traditional restaurants, I think it does have a role. And, and as Nando's, uh, is that something you, in Singapore you're looking to do or do you have enough coverage from the existing assets? Um, you no, know, we would, I think we are open to opportunities for that. So we don't, um, we don't have full coverage of the island without compromising food quality. Um, so it is a small, you know, small city state, but nevertheless, if you, if you want to limit travel times to 15 minutes or less, um, we wouldn't be able to reach all of the islanders. So you will have pockets that are underserved. Um, and, and they may not be, you know, they may not be big enough to justify a full-size restaurant, but they may justify a dark Interesting. And in, in terms of, so, you know, we, a lot of the listeners of this podcast are based in the UK and the US. Like, and clearly you guys are uh, several weeks, if not months ahead of, you know, how we've, uh, how we've been seeing it in the UK and uh, you've emerged out of um, the circuit break or lockdown earlier than, than we have. What, 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 how does it look now? Like what, what, what advice would you be giving yourself to, you know, a few months ago, a few weeks ago to, uh, you know, if you could do that? I think there's a couple of things. One is, um, having very obvious and in your face communication to customers about the safety measures that you have in place, I think is important. So we've over-indexed on that comms. And so we have a number of posters at the entrance and, and we put out a lot of comms through social media and emails about all of the measures that we have in place. And, and it speaks to your example about the stickers on our team members showing the temperature from that recording. So I think there's, there's value in you know, almost going over the top in the comms so that people understand how seriously you're taking it and the measures you take because most people will have an understanding of what goes on in the background. I think the other important thing is um, continue to, to focus on delivery and takeaway, even if when dining comes back because we, you know, we saw delivery and takeaway increase significantly during the circuit break because it was the only channels available to customers. But what we have also seen is as dining has come back, that volume has come down, but it's still significantly higher than it was before the circuit breaker. So if you can continue to invest in that, it can help offset some of the losses from dining. Um, and and you know, our hope is that, you know, as dining comes back, actually we keep the extra delivery and takeaway and we just see net growth. Um, and then the last part I think is this is an opportunity for digital. As I think I mentioned, there's an, this is, you know, you can accelerate any digital agenda you had very much more quickly. And, and, and the biggest challenge for us with, with a lot of the, the work we wanted to do around digital was actually just getting customer adoption and, and yeah. customers getting used to it. And 
And this is a time when customers are much more open to it and actually want it. So you're no longer are you trying to force something that they don't want. Now you're actually providing something they do want. So I think invest in digital early because you'll get the benefit of that so that you start getting the benefit of that earlier. I think they're the three things that we particularly focused on. Um, and then the last thing I'd say is actually there's, you know, figure out where your vulnerabilities are. So I think, we, you know, having uh, area managers or whatever equivalent you have that visit 10 restaurants, you know, within the space of a week is a big risk. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, menus are, are a high touch surface. Let's just understand where your, your risks and vulnerabilities are. Yeah. I, I like that a lot, actually. I think uh, you're totally right. I think that there's there's um, there's actually a really good article Yuval Hariri wrote a few a few months ago about how crises like this are accelerators, right? There were trends that were happening before, but this just like really accelerates that. And and if you think about it in terms of delivery, in terms of like uh, the, the 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 digitization generally, but and even to other bits of the economy, like you know, education. I, I read somewhere someone saying that they had in the space of five weeks, the equivalent of five years of, of what the normal growth should have been, right? It's, uh, uh, so, so, and, and it's interesting that I like how you're saying that actually before you were trying to force these things onto a customer or, or, or having to give them big incentives. So like, you know, use our, our, our app and we'll give you, you know, like $5 off or the meal or whatever. Now, now it's kind of like, I want that app. Just give me the app, you know, and I, I, I'm, I'm happy to do that. So that, that's, uh, it, it's, it's definitely something worth jumping on for sure. And, and the communication point's interesting because I think, I think that's the case with everything here. I mean, I think, whether that's communications to customers, but also communication to the team, I think that's the only way to really make people feel, you know, safe and and understand, right? And and also if you're doing that communication, people understand at that point, okay, this is why they're doing this. They're not just like, oh, well, they, they've got this other agenda. I don't know. It's like, hey, this is what we're doing. This is why we're doing it and explaining that. I think that goes a long way, uh, especially in these times of uncertainty. So I, I like that a lot. Um, cool. Listen, I've 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 loved the, the the chat. I've got a few quick fire questions I'd like to 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 finish on with you. Uh, so I've I've, I've just got three. Uh, I'll I'll shoot and tell me that the, the first uh, the first thing that comes. And obviously the first one has to be spice level. What 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 is what spice level do you go for? I go for for hot. I'm not yet working my way up to extra hot, but it's still an ambition. <laughs> it's got a small level to go um if you could only choose one of three so a starter a main or dessert which one which one would it be in nando's it'd always be a main um and out of nando's i do have a sweet tooth but i think it'd probably still be a main okay good i'm i i have a huge sweet tooth so so to me it's always like that that dessert and then finally last meal on earth if uh, what would be that last meal on earth for you um, so I, um, I'm half Iranian and so mm-hmm. it would probably be an Iranian dish called Fesinju, which is a, a pomegranate and walnut, um, pomegranate molasses and walnut sauce. And then you'd have that with like duck or chicken and, and, and some basmati rice. So mm. that, that would be, yummy. yeah, it is very good. <laughs> good. 
Well, Muji, th- thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. I think that, that there's some really interesting insights there uh, and that will be very helpful for, for, for restauranters that are a few weeks in and months behind the, the curve here. Uh, and listen, I hope everything goes well, that the, the, the recovery keep, keeps, uh, keeps gaining pace. And uh, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for listening. If you want even more insights and tips, you can head over to Tenzo's blog linked in the description or follow at Tenzo Inc on Twitter and LinkedIn and Tenzo PPL on Instagram. Hope you have a great day.